Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined in our Brighton studios on a gorgeous spring day by my colleague, Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Greetings and salutations. Peter, you and I have spent a lot of time lately talking about national politics, and there is plenty to talk about right now, including the Department of Justice's decision to indict Judge Shelley Joseph and Joe Biden and Seth Moulton joining the 250 other Democrats who are running for president. <laughs> but in this episode, we are going to go local with a vengeance and talk about the state of play in Boston politics. And we are joined, as we do that, by two excellent guests, Yawu Miller, the senior editor of the Bay State Banner, and Boston Globe columnist and editorial board member Joan Vanaki. Joan and Yawu, thank you for being here. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. So... It seems to me we've got to start off with Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu, who just went national with a glowing profile in The Atlantic. The title of the piece was The Next Mayor of Boston. And even though The Atlantic threw in a question mark at the end, I'm guessing that there was some rage reading going on in current mayor Marty Walsh's office after the piece was published. Wu is also in the news right now for proposing a change in the way Boston hands out parking permits, which are currently free. She has suggested charging 25 bucks for the first permit and then 25 bucks more for each additional permit. So, for example, 50 bucks for a second, 75 for a third, and so on. All of this, of course, comes just a few months ahead of Boston's 2019 elections, in which Wu is going to be seeking her fourth term as an at-large city councilor. Peter Kansas, let me start with you. As you size up the current Michelle Wu moment, what do you see? Well, what I see and, and what others see or speculate about is probably more accurate is that, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that if she comes in a strong first in the at-large council, she will uh, challenge Mayor Walsh. We'll see whether that's true. Now, the piece in The Atlantic, which is glowing, would really help her fundraising. And I mean fundraising right now, because to come in first in the city, which she's done before, you need plenty of money. And if she were ever the run for, for mayor, you need even more money. And Mayor Walsh has got, what, a million bucks plus in the bank? So that's a gift from heaven. I love this parking permit issue. And uh, I'm going to be a little perverse. Uh, this is a family podcast. Yeah, no, well, well, uh, okay, I'll be uh, uh, I'll play devil's advocate. All right. Michelle Wu has joined Mayor Walsh's undeclared war on Boston car owners. Think about it. You know, Mayor Walsh has upped the meter fares, big jump in ticket pricing. You know, a, a ticket that costs you $50 might today cost you 90 You know, under the old Menino administration, those increases would have been, say, phased in 3% a year or something. The city of Boston, you know, is going gaga over bicycles. There may be a good reason for doing that. But no one has tapped into the uh, poor, oppressed automobile driver. 
All right. Now that you've given your perverse take, I got to go for a counterpoint to Yahoo Miller because Yahoo, you didn't bike over here for this episode, mm -hmm. right? But you have biked to WGBH to join us before, correct? That's correct. All right. Do you agree with Peter that Michelle Wu has joined a undeclared but savage war on Boston motorists being persecuted by Mayor Walsh? I wouldn't quite phrase it that way, but I agree with you, Peter. Um, I think it's dangerous territory for an elected official because, you know, there are some neighborhoods in Boston like Jamaica Plain or the South End where hipster people with no kids and, you know, can walk to a supermarket. They can't like they can walk to work, etc. Once you have kids and you move into like a larger home, maybe in Rosendale or Roxbury or Dorchester, or what have you, if your school is more than, a, you know, like a few blocks away from your home, if you live more than a mile from your supermarket, you can't exist without a car. So there's a large voting constituency out there that's going to take exception to that. I don't think people in West Roxbury, for instance, are going to take too kindly to people upping their, you know, permit fees. I mean, they don't have permit fees in West Roxbury. They don't have a parking issue. But that war on drivers, I mean, they're the ones who are kind of streaming through Jamaica Plain and what have you, like, and you're taking away their travel lanes. Joan Vanaki, we've got parking and driving and cars to talk about, but we also have this woo possible mayoral run. Uh, does your intel jibe with Peter's? Are you hearing that if Michelle Wu finishes a strong first in the uh, at-large city council race, that she's going to take on Marty Walsh? Well, to answer the question, is she the next mayor of Boston? I mean, I think she has a good shot at being the next mayor of Boston if she wants to, you know, if, she, if that's what she wants. I think the city feels ready for a mayor, Michelle Wu. It's up to her if she wants to take on an incumbent and, and you know, throw down that gauntlet. When you say the city feels ready, I think I might know what you mean, but I want to make sure that, that I do. What do you mean? I mean that the just city feels like on a on the cusp of a of a leadership change, that the older generation is maybe reluctantly leaving the stage, but leaving the stage. Finally the torch is being passed to not just a new generation, but a generation of of, you know, color from different neighborhoods of Boston sort of finally asserting power and getting their moment and having the, the opportunity to flex their muscle. And um, Mayor Walsh, even though he isn't old by number, he feels like he's part of the old Boston to me. You know, just, just to add here, my uh, snarky take on the parking permits aside, I mean, I have incredible respect and admiration for Councilor Wu, not just as a public servant, as a daughter who took care of her mother and was surrogate mother to her little sisters. Um, you know, she started a family business. She, she's such an open and approachable young woman, I'm old enough to say that, that you lose sight of the fact of how tough she must be inside. The first time I saw Michelle Wu was I was uh, moderating, uh, you know, one of those giant city council forums at um, Franklin Park, at the Franklin Park Golf Course. And she was sick as a dog, high fever. Under the table, her hands were shaking. Oh, you my know, God. She was nervous and sick. But she made perfect sense. You know, she soldiered on. She, she's one one tough lady. Tough as she is, though, the, the any incumbent mayor in Boston 
has just tremendous power. And I'm not arguing with Joan. I, 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 I do think the city of Boston is approaching a sort of tipping point. I don't know whether it'll be two or three years from now, but Ayanna Presley mm-hmm. is the forerunner of that. But, you know, almost anyone who runs against an incumbent gets, you know, about 30% of the vote. You know, I, I in, in, in my crabbier moments, say there's always a 30% sorehead vote out there. The real challenge is, uh, and I can imagine people saying how she'd get the other 21%, but um, it's no small thing to unseat a Boston mayor. She might not have to, though. I mean, that last Patriots parade could actually be the mayor's last Patriots parade. That's what he said, sort of. And then people said, does that mean you're not running again? And, you know, he sort of, you know, avoided that question. But he might not run again. Michelle Wu has $302,000 in the bank, more than that, um, by, you know, I think by the last reporting period. So she's amassed a war chest. So a couple weeks ago, there's a rally in Grove Hall for Rachel Rollins. She's in a spat with the governor. Michelle Wu gets up there to talk. And so everybody else is saying, Rachel Rollins this, Rachel Rollins that. Michelle Wu gets up there and starts talking about, as a child of immigrants, blah, blah, blah. She starts giving her campaign speech sounding like she's already running for mayor. That's so. fascinating. Right. And I mean, I think just just look at her, how she's used the city council as a platform to sort of lay the groundwork and to really take on Walsh on on some issues. As much as I, I totally agree with you, Yahoo, on the whole issue of, and Peter, on the whole issue of taking on cars, there really is like a generational thing, right? It's a generational True. divide. True. It's people in my office that um, are, you know, biking and, and scootering and well, what have you. guys have that sweet downtown right? location. I know. Now, so. yeah. well, the rest of us are saying, what about us and our cars? So, I mean, maybe it is kind of a third rail. I don't know. But she must sense that there's a constituency out there. And if she can get the scooter voters out and the bike riders out and the people that aren't so big on cars out, that there are enough votes there to, to maybe make Mayor. And she's been really vocal on this transit issue for a while now. I mean, she was lobbying against the T, lobbying is, I guess, the wrong word technically, but pushing against the really T taking fare on increases, the T on the fare increases, putting up, you know, 20 pictures a day of her taking her son around on the T and, you know, what was working, what wasn't working. So she's been, she's honed in, it seems to me, on transportation as an issue that she believes, uh, you know, she has strong beliefs there. And also, I assume she thinks there's a political upside. T- two points. One is that. She's used the council masterfully, but she really believes what she says. She's an unusual politician in that, you know, all of the issues she's pushed forward on, she has a sort of deep, not just intellectual commitment to, but an emotional commitment, and that that's strong. Um, what I find really, really telling is there used to be a big annual event in Boston, the, the Chinatown Democratic Dinner. And it, you know, it fell into, you know, it fell by the wayside. Well, several weeks ago, she revived it at China Pearl, and everyone was there. Is this like the, uh, a Frank Chin-related event? I think of him as the, the big mover and shaker, but maybe that's going too far back to Menino. No, guys. no. It, it, and the governor was there. The Senate president was there. Uh, Mayor Walsh was there. I just mean that um, Councilor Wu behind the scenes and out in front of the crowd is asserting herself as a leader. Has Boston 
had a mayor before who came here from another American city because, you know, and I say another American city, I, my, my assumption, I could be wrong, is that back in the day there was, you know, a bunch of Irish guys who came here when they were two. Okay, yeah, well, you're putting I, up your hands like, I don't know. It's an interesting question to ponder, I think, because obviously Ayanna Presley was able to beat Mike Capuano, even though he was from here originally and she wasn't. Like Wu, she is from Chicago. But I wonder if there's a different valence when it comes to city elections in particular, or maybe there isn't. Look, I, think, it, I think it's a sign of how much the city has changed yeah. that so far that really hasn't been you know part of the dialogue of how um, how she fits into Boston. And in terms of, if, I guess, our frame of reference is Kevin White to today, right? And they were all hometown boys. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I go does. back to Collins, but <laughs> actually but, I used to shovel Mayor Hines' sidewalk, so... <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> I defer to your age and wisdom. There was a time know. when I was a kid, if you came from Weymouth, you were a foreigner. <laughs> yeah, I think that, 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 though, that, I mean, if you look at Boston today, most of the people who are here weren't in Boston in the 1970s, and many of them aren't from Boston, period. So the city has changed. Has the electoral landscape changed, though? That's the bigger question. Right. Can you get those people registered, and you get, can you get them to vote in a city election? In a primary, in too. In a primary, right. Well, yeah. what Presley showed is you could get these people to vote. Now, of course, running an anti-Trump change campaign for U.S. Congress could be considered something very different, but it's a challenge. Here's a thought experiment for us before we move on to other city politics stuff. If Michelle Wu runs for mayor and if she runs against current mayor Marty Walsh, does Ayanna Presley come out and campaign for Michelle Wu, who had campaigned for her when she was taking on Mike Capuano, or does Ayanna Presley sit that one out? Doesn't Congresswoman Presley's husband work for the mayor? Yeah, you're shaking your head. Not anymore. When did that change? I didn't. this is breaking news for me. He's in his own PR company, right? Yeah, he's he's gone into lobbying. Oh, Uh, interesting. I don't know if I read it in the Globe or where, but but, yeah. I think think it was in the Globe. Yeah, Um, I missed it. Now, she did stay out of the Tito Jackson, Marty Walsh showdown, right? Yeah. And that at that point, her husband still was employed by City Hall. That was Ayanna 1.0, though, where she was like sort of the more timid, conservative, you know, not like didn't really stick her nose into anything controversial until she took on Capuano. Well, without any real knowledge on this, I'd bet that she'd be with Michelle Wu. All right, let's move on to a couple other things. (laughs) And let's actually stay on the the city electoral front for just a bit before we turn our attention to the uh, Boston School Superintendent search. There are a few seats open in this uh, upcoming city council election. Uh, We have, and I have to hear the sound of paper rustling (laughs) as I, I try to refresh my memory, Counselors leaving include Josh Zakem, Mark Siomo, Tim McCarthy. Am I missing anyone there? No, nope, it's just those three. Okay, and then we have Althea Garrison, who snuck into her at-large council seat. I don't say that pejoratively, by the way, at all. I mean, she, she did it by the rules when Ayanna Presley left to become a congresswoman. So she'll be trying to retain that seat. Are there any candidates who are out there on the outside looking to get in who particularly intrigue you guys that people should be paying attention to? Yesterday, I went to Alejandra St. Guillen's uh, campaign kickoff, um, and she drew a fairly substantial crowd, was introduced by Michelle Wu. Even though when she left the mayor's office, she wasn't on good terms with the mayor, 
Joyce Linehan, who's you know from the mayor's office, and Marty Martinez, the head of health and human services, were there. Huh. You know, Felix D'Arroyo was there. It, for listeners who who might not remember, or for hosts who might have failed to refresh their memory before this conversation, remind people what Alejandra Sinkian was doing for the mayor. She was head of the Office of Immigrant, I forget. Was it the Office of New Bostonians, or maybe I'm getting it wrong? Um, All right. I, don't, I keep talking. I'm going to Google in real okay. time, but, but keep going, Yahoo. Um, yeah, so she, uh, she had her campaign kickoff. It was a very good, you know, very strong turnout. And she's also raised uh, a fairly substantial amount of money. I, I have her down just my real quick glance at OCPF records. Like she's raised $53,000, which is more than any of the other challengers. Um, uh, Julia Mejia has raised 36000 and David Halbert has raised $33,000. Um, so, I mean, I think those three are running campaigns, raising money. They're among the the more serious can- candidates. Now, there are, um, I think, Domingo Starosa, Mike M- Michelle Dennis, uh, Raymond Duran, Priscilla Flint-Banks, William King, Herb Alexander Lozano, and Jeffrey Ross. Alejandra St. Guillen has raised $53,000. Um, in addition to Alejandra, uh, David Halbert has raised $33,000, and Julia Mejia has raised $36,000, they're, you know, among the candidates, I think, who have, who are, you know, running serious campaigns. They've got like a bit of a tailwind. They're, you know, their fundraising works good. None of them is close to Anissa Asabi George, who has about 83,000. And then uh, Michelle Wu has 300,000. She's just behind Flaherty, who has 347,000. Althea Garrison, though, she came in with 18,000 votes behind Anissa Asabi George, who had 45,000 votes. So she's, you know, was a distant fifth place. She's got like a zero ballots in her account. Um, most it's about the free media for yeah. Althea Garrison, right? Um, God, God bless her. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, yeah. persistence and sort of like, you know, Russian roulette, like, you know, eventually you're going to get that that chamber with the bullet in it. And it came up last time. She might not be so lucky this time. You know, the other the other people in the race are Domingo Starosa, Michelle Dennis, Raymond Duran, Priscilla Flint Banks, William King, Herb Alexander Lozano, and Jeffrey Ross. Um, and none of them has raised a substantial amount since the beginning of the year. All right. I think I have Alejandra St. Guillen's, uh former City Hall title down. Did she head up the Office of Immigrant Advancement? Yes. Okay. Why? And then we'll get Peter and Joan back in here, I promise you guys. But when you say she left on bad terms, what, what was going on there? Okay. If I said she left on bad terms, I may have You probably didn't. This but is she, a, my what, hyperbolic okay. paraphrasing. When she left the office, it's rumored that relations between her and the mayor were somewhat strained. Um, my understanding is she sought an endorsement from Walsh and did not get it um, early on. Which, in a way, she should be grateful for because everyone he endorses Locked. actually loses. <laughs> right. but, oh, yeah. ba-boom. <laughs> the track record isn't great. Peter and Joan, are you watching for anything in this race besides, I guess, whether Althea Garrison keeps her job and whether Michelle Wu tops the ticket? For me, it's it's too early. I'm very interested in seeing how Lydia Edwards does. Now, she's seeking re-election, and, you know, what's the turnout? How strong? Andrea Campbell, the same thing, the council president. How strong is the turnout? Lydia Edwards, by the way, someone who 
Uh, I don't think the mayor publicly endorsed her opponent, but my understanding is that he worked for her opponent behind the scenes. And my understanding is also that she's still pretty steamed about that. He gave he gave a uh, a backhanded endorsement, which was that he did not formally endorse, but he allowed the candidate to use literature with his picture on him and Thank made you. phone calls on his behalf without formally making an endorsement. Yeah, Ed, Edwards in, in Campbell, along with Wu, three smart cookies. They're real, I, I guess, comers in Boston politics. Perhaps a better way would be is they're relatively new, notable presences in the Massachusetts political constellation. And Campbell, I think, got our award for best joke at the uh, at the St. Patrick's yeah. Day breakfast when <laughs> yeah. she joked about how hard it was to, to get to the new destination at the Flint Seaport and then uh, provided sort of a, a map courtesy of things that Marty Walsh had hoped to create that he did. I had forgotten that. that was she, she was a surprise hit there. I mean, she was very droll. Yeah, she was good. Joan, anything in the council well, race besides say, what we've talked I'll about? I'll just say very briefly, I'm not going to pretend to have the depth of knowledge that Yahoo does about all the people that are running. Um, but two things. I mean, I'm happy for Althea Garrison. She kind of got to live her dream. And whether she gets to live it again, we don't know. But at least she, you know, she got to be on the Boston City Council. And from my perspective, I mean, the interesting thing about the Boston City Council is that it's become a power base for female politicians. Um, you know, three men are leaving. Um, it sounds like there's at least, you know, a couple, one at-large candidate that you just mentioned whose kickoff you went to um, who seems to have, a, you know, a shot at it. Um, so it, after all those years of male domination, again, it's been it's a place where women politicians in Boston get to have a platform and a voice and can maybe plot a future in politics, right. plot and, their own future. And in Siomo's district, there are women running who are fairly well positioned to win, as well as in Zakum's district. The field is mixed in uh, Hyde Park, uh, District 5, I believe it is, which uh, McCarthy is vacating. Ricardo Arroyo has raised more than fifty thousand dollars. This is this is Felix uh, Di Arroyo's uh, son. I always want to say Felix Senior and Junior, but that's wrong. I know because they don't share a middle initial. If right. Memory serves, but yeah, Felix Felix Di's son. And and uh, so I mean, if if for example he got on, you would all you would for the first time have seven people of color in the council. And we're also looking at the possibility of a majority female city council. You, right? you could right. very easily have a majority female. Uh, Council and it could be a very different council for the mayor to contend with. Um, he's not projected his power. He's not gotten people elected, and they could buck him. They could start to buck him on things. Last year, with the uh, impending closure of uh, the West Roxbury Education Complex, you had six councilors write a letter saying, "You know, we're opposed to this." Once you get to seven, it's the magic number in the thirteen-member council. You have a you could have a majority of people bucking the mayor on everything from his budget to you know who knows what. Right, but when it comes right down to it, does bucking the mayor really count unless it's about the budget or a major appointment? I like think it a does. Police commissioner. I well, think, I'm playing devil's yeah, advocate I, now. I know. I mean, I think it does. I mean, I think again, it's not just about winning a, a vote or something that happens in the city council. It's having a voice and a platform um, and using it to advance an agenda. Uh, and uh, I can tell you, that there is a way that the Boston City Council could really clip any mayor's wings. And that is if, and uh, our colleague, Adam uh, Isaiah Thompson, 
suggested this to me, that in Philadelphia, according to Isaiah, the, the general operating protocol is if something is going to happen in a given counselor's home district, the, the, the council will not move it forward if that counselor objects. Oh, interesting. Now, that's not written into the city charter. Just the way they do business. That's just the way they do business. So the mayor has to be much Uh. more careful down there. Now, I'm not sure if Boston's capable of doing something like that, but um, just a thought. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, uh, you get the last word here. I was just going to say the optics are bad if if you're facing opposition from the council, like, and it's a majority of the council that's opposing you on something like that. And, you know, if you're a male mayor and it's all women, you know, going against you, that looks bad. If you're a white mayor and it's all people of color going against you, that looks bad. So it's a changing dynamic. Dating myself, John Silver would call that a damn matriarchy, right? All right. That's, I, I almost feel like we should end right You're there. You're dating us all. Good line. Uh, let's talk, before we wrap up here, about what's going on with the Boston School Superintendent Search. There are three finalists. I want to read through them for people like me who might uh, not have had them at immediate recall. Marie Izquierdo, the Chief Academic Officer for the Miami-Dade Public Schools. Brenda Caselius, she had been the Education Commissioner in the state of Minnesota, my home state and Oscar Santos, who is the head of Cathedral High School here in Boston. What do the three of you make of the way this search has been conducted so far and the three finalists that the Walsh administration has apparently settled on? A lot of parents were complaining that the search process has been sort of held out of public view. There were originally 39 candidates, and you know, b- before it whittled down to three, people didn't know who they were. Many parents felt like there weren't there wasn't enough parent input on the, you know, whittling down process before it became public. I think part of the reason why it's not public is that um, if people put their names out there, they don't want it, they don't want it to be public that they're looking for a job outside their home district until they're, you know, until they get to that final stage. So, you know, there are reasons for that. Uh, Peter Kedzis, you've always, I mean, you as someone who had kids go through VPS, you're very tapped in. The discontent that Yahoo mentioned among some parents, are you sensing this as well? I know the mayor, I believe it was in an interview with the Herald, sort of questioned how many people didn't like the way this search had shaken out, suggesting, I think, that the Herald was cherry-picking nabobs of negativism to, to get, you know... You mean like the quotes. 10 people on Twitter that opposed the Olympics? I, I think the mayor is wrong there. I have seen a lot of emails as a former parent. My wife and I are still on email lists, you know, where whether you want them or not, you get these citywide email lists. And um, I'm not in the position to gauge you know, on a scale of one to 10, how strong the discontent is. But I would say it's it's considerable among activist parents. Now, I'm drawing, I'm drawing a distinction here, but it's an important distinction because activist parents tend to be voting parents. Unimpressed by the three final candidates, none of them has been a superintendent of a major metropolitan school district. And is that the be-all and end-all? No, it is not. Perhaps that's too narrow a way to look at it, and I I can understand that. But this is a tough job. It's a treacherous job. And Mayor Walsh's first superintendent flamed out. Tommy Chang. Tommy Chang flamed out, and the search process was not 
was not a very good one. I, I'm trying to withhold judgment. They're smart people. They're committed people. You know, good people. But it's a tough job. Joan Vernock, if you had any of these people, I guess it's you wouldn't have them into the ad board yet, right? You'd no, have we haven't them into the ad board. But, but just to follow up on one thing that that Peter mentioned, I mean, I think what Marty Walsh is feeling right now is a lot of the backlash from what happened with Tommy Chang's exit as school superintendent. Um, it it happened in a really you know, sort of awkward way, and I think maybe it affected the pool of candidates who thought about what it would be like to come to Boston. Um, you say Chang flamed out. Well, there are, there's another way of looking at it. He did have a change agenda. He wasn't really adept at handling the politics of Boston. He, some people think he kind of got thrown under the bus by Marty Walsh. And people from the outside looking in, they, why would they want to walk into that situation if they thought that they come in, they have this um, mandate to make change, and if the mayor doesn't stand by you when you're trying to do it? Now, I know that you have to have political skills to make it happen, and maybe Chang didn't have it. But I do think that that depressed the pool. Oh, I, by the way, and, I, I would agree with and that. And it added to the feelings of, that parents have of that they wanted more transparency, they wanted to be more part of the process of what was going to happen the next time in, and they felt closed out. As to the quality of these three people, uh, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on yeah. that. I mean, maybe they'll be fine. Interestingly, it can, it's sort of the issue of mayoral control over the school committee and mayoral intervention into the workings of the school department came up with all three candidates. All of them were asked some version. Some version of the question is like, how would you work under uh, in a system where the mayor has you know this degree of control? And all of them gave sort of varying degrees of an answer. Like I'm you know used to politics. Uh, Casillas said she you know worked for a governor. It was a, you know sort of like strong uh, control over the system. So each of them had like a you know a pretty ready answer for that. I think they all all three of them certainly know what they're walking into. Peter Kadzis, I think you were going to say something before Yahoo did. I, I'm trying not to be overly negative because the the Boston public schools are so important, and I do think there's goodwill on a lot of people's parts, but. Something hasn't been working for years. It wasn't working under the Menino administration in the last several years of mm. his administration, too. It's almost as if we have a tension between control and results. And um, it, it's as long as the schools don't get worse, control wins. There's another problem here, and that problem is that the schools are largely full of kids from poor families. And so the America's social safety net has been cut to ribbons over the years. And so many social problems come to rest or, you know, become magnified in the school system. You have to give the mayor, the administrators, the teachers their due in that it's, you know, it's a daunting job. We also have to notice, though, that Boston, along with New York City, has very high per-pupil expenditures. Menino's last four years, Mayor Walsh's first four years, people have not looked at the schools as closely as they should have. Basically, since, you know, Boston City Council John Conley has exited the scene. Peter made a point about how many 
kids in the Boston system come from low-income families. Both Caselius and um, Santos spoke about the importance of wraparound services with schools. Santos sort of saying that you had to look to outside institutions, you know, city departments, as well as social service agencies, that they should be coordinated through the schools because kids are showing up in school with adult-sized problems. Kids are coming into school not ready to learn because they're homeless or, you know, for whatever reason. So, you know, both of them talked about the importance of the school, like Caselius more from inside the school department, how do they deal with that? And Santos from outside the school department, how do they deal with that? So yeah, it's definitely an issue that's on their radar. I just don't think there's an easy way to move the dial, but I predict that a week from today we'll know who the next superintendent of the Boston <laughs> Public Schools will be. Yeah. yeah. All right, that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Joan Vernaki, Yahoo Miller, Peter Kadzis, thank you for being here. It was fun. Thank you. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. If you haven't already, we would love it if you subscribed to The Scrum. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, pretty much anywhere you go to get your podcasts. We would also love to hear from you with any feedback or suggestions. The best way to reach both me and Peter is probably on Twitter, I'm at Riley Adam. He is at Kadzis. And just for the hell of it, Yahoo, what's your Twitter handle and what's yours, Joan? Yahoo Miller. <laughs> at Yahoo Miller, that's easy. I think, are you at Globe Vinaki? At Joan underscore Vinaki. At Joan underscore Vinaki with two N's and... O-C-H-I. O-C-H-I. All right, there it is, folks. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker, and we got crucial production help from Andrew Masawa. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. WGBH News.